Kent taught on the church, some aspects of the church, uh, primarily fellowship and diversity, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to be following a similar theme this morning. I think you know if you, have, if you hear ten different people talk on the same subject, you'll get ten different versions. So there might be some repetition, but I don't think there will be a whole lot of crossover. To start, let me tell you, I think most of you know I come from a large family, and Kathy and Rachel are getting these brochures passed out. Uh, two things on this. We'll go over the church mission statement a little later, and there's also a doctrinal statement inside. Um, you can take that home and read it. There may be more information in there than than you care to look at, but you're certainly welcome to look at as much or as of little of that as you would like to. But I grew up in a large family. I'm one of 11 kids, and we are all grown. I think the youngest of us is uh, 30-something, yeah. So we were raised in a big house just a couple of blocks from here. We all grew up. Most of us have all started our own families. So on one hand, we share a a very common heritage, same parent, same ethical upbringing, same kind of large worldview of life. So we share a lot in common. On the flip side, if you went to a family reunion or if you went from one Halpin or married Halpin household name now to another, you'd see great diversity as well. On one hand, we have some similarities because we come from the same place. But on the flip side, we also all have our own unique characters. And and you'll see that displayed in each family. And then we're old enough that, you know, my, what would they be? The second generation, you know, there's other generations coming up as well. And they'll have the same thing. So on one hand, there's a lot in common. And on the other, there's very unique qualities. And it's just because of the differences each one of us have. And I use this just as a way to introduce the topic of the church this morning. We're going to look at the church in two phases. One is kind of big and broad, and the other is smaller and local. Big and broad, smaller and local. You know, on one hand, the church uh, has a lot of common elements. The, The big church has a lot of common elements. On one hand, we share the same Lord. If you saw in the song, uh, in a passage we'll look at a little later in Ephesians 4, we share much in common. The most important things in the world we share in common are Christ, of course. But then there's also great diversity within that. We're going to start looking at what's called the Catholic Church, the universal church. I grew up Roman Catholic, and so if I hear the term Catholic, I think Roman Catholic. But Catholic in the classical sense means universal. It just means the whole thing. On the big picture, there's one church in the world today, and there's been only one church throughout the ages. You guys know if you read your Bible, it's kind of divided not quite in half by volume, but you've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the division there is between God's interaction with Israel in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant and then the birth of the church in the New and the Gospels carry through that transition period from when Jesus came to the earth and then the inception of the church at Pentecost. So the church, actually the, the term we use, church, um, represents a Greek term called ekklesia, and so it's two different words. It's ek, which means out, and lege, which means chosen. The church is this chosen out group from the world, chosen out or called out to belong to God and to Christ. That's what our term church means. 
if you look in the scriptures, the church didn't exist before the day of Pentecost. And that's on our calendar today. That Pentecost Sunday would be a week from today. Before Pentecost Sunday, the church did not exist. But from that Sunday on, anyone who trusted in Christ received the Holy Spirit through that faith and they became born again personally, but they also were born into this new family, the church, this called out group. So on Pentecost Sunday, a couple thousand years ago, the church was born. And from that time, everyone who trusts in Christ is given the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a guarantee. Paul says in Ephesians, it's a marker that you belong to Christ. And I don't want to be confusing here. If you trust in Christ, you get the Holy Spirit. There's some theologies that will tell you some people can believe in Christ but not get the Spirit. And that just frankly is... Uh, You can't get that out of the New Testament. If you trust in Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit in Paul's words. So from the day of Pentecost on, when a person trusted Christ, they were sealed with or given the Holy Spirit. And so every person from that day on who's trusted Christ has been given the Spirit and they've been born into the church, into the body of Christ, into the family of God. So... On the big picture, on the big scale, the church is each and every person from the day of Pentecost who's trusted Christ and been given the Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, Paul says, you're not a Christian. You may make claims, and you guys know in the world in which we live in, uh, if you read the Barna polls, for instance, today, you know, 90% of Americans are Christian. It's laughable, of course, because it's a, it's a claim, but there seems to be no reality behind that number. And that's not worth saying. We're not talking about nominal Christianity. The church is every person who's trusted Christ and been baptized by His Spirit, given the Holy Spirit, but only those people who've trusted in Christ and been given His Spirit. So on one hand, it means that each and every person is in the church. The church is not smaller than each and every person on the earth today who has the Holy Spirit. It's that big. It's no smaller than that. It also means that no one group can make a claim to be the church, exclusive of people outside its umbrella. Does this make sense? The church I was raised in said there was no salvation outside its umbrella. The truth is, the scriptures teach, if you believe in Christ, you get the Spirit, you're in the church. So each and every person who's trusted Christ gets the Spirit, they're in the church. No one church, no one group can claim to be the church, the Catholic church, by themselves. This means a couple things. People that, it doesn't matter what church building they go into. It doesn't matter what denominational name they claim. It doesn't matter how left field you think they are in some specific doctrine that they hold. If they've trusted Christ, they've got the Spirit, and they're in the church. They're your brother and sister in Christ. And it also means that every group that names the name of Christ locally in some local setting like ours, is the church universal expressed in a local sense. So every person who has the Spirit is in the church, and no one church, no one geographical location, no one denominational title, etc., can, can claim to be the church apart from others 
who've also named the name of Christ. The church is that big, it's no smaller than that. And it's bigger than any single entity that you and I could go to or name. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4, thinking about what's common to every Christian, what's common to the church. He says this, just referenced in the song. In Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, he says there's one body and one spirit, one body, one church, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's one church. These are all the things we share in common. Just like a family with one set of parents and a large number of children and the different ways each of those children look, there's one church with one source, Christ Himself and God, one source, one faith, one hope, one baptism. Every Christian shares all these things in common. Now having said that, it's obvious that while there is one universal church, It gets expressed in innumerable ways, right? If you tried, if if your hope, if your goal was to get the church of Jesus Christ on the earth today in one meeting, in one place at one time, you couldn't do it. It couldn't happen. Logistically, it couldn't happen. So by necessity, there's other reasons too. Obviously, many times it's by choice, some good reasons, some less good. But by necessity, the church universal meets in various places, in various times, in various groups. So that universal church gets expressed in groups just like ours. Some bigger, some smaller, different places, different times, some different emphasis, etc. But that universal church gets expressed in local expressions just like ours by necessity. The downside of this, and there's, there's several, just a couple. The downside of this is, If you and I have a vision of the church that's no bigger than the smaller local group we're a part in, several things can happen. One is we can have a deflated view of the church, how big Christ's church in the world is. It's easy to develop a parochial mindset where we think God's work in the world is no bigger than our little group. Or we can develop a sense of pride that somehow we're more important than some other group because we don't see what else God is doing. Or two, it can mean that we develop uh, teachings or understandings of Christ or the church or the scriptures that simply don't hold water, that aren't true because we're not rubbing shoulders with other people who say, "Hold, hold on, just wait a minute. So the fact that the church has to meet by necessity in smaller local groups can have a downside can have a downside. It can also have an upside, though. Think of this. The fact that there are lots of smaller groups expressing this universal church of Christ on the earth means that lots of us are called to serve and lead and do all kinds of things. We're called to serve because we're needed. If there were one big church, one big group, there'd be a limited number of slots, if you will, to fill. Needs to be filled. And one of the things that happens because there's a diversity of groups meeting in different places is people like you and I have to get involved. Uh, We've been involved in starting a couple churches and I can tell you on the front end, one of the things, the bases you cover is who's going to do what? Because there's lots of work to be accommodated. So one of the upsides of a variety of churches meeting in various places is that you and I, people like you and I are called to serve. We have to get involved. 
Another thing which I think is meant to be an asset and a positive is that church is just like family groups. You know, uh, Mike's family looks a little different than Mary's. We have different influences on our life now. We have different interactions. Well, local churches have the same thing. And part of the upside is that local churches develop strengths based on their membership and based on their outlook and the gifts that they have. You know, on an individual level, all of us are called to be a Christian in the world that we live in, which means things like we're called to share the gospel with other people, we're called to pray for people, etc. But we would look around and say, gosh, Harry does something better than I do. He has gifts and abilities in some area that I'm called to be a part of that I don't have. Or I have strengths that someone else doesn't have. And of course, this same thing gets replicated in churches. Some churches will be better at some element of being the church than other churches because of the folks that are in them and the, and the way God has distributed gifts. This is an upside. Churches should have their own inherent strengths based on who's, who's in that church and based on the sense that they have that God wants us about these things. God's developing us along these lines. So in that sense, local churches should have inherent strengths based on who God's made them, how God's put them together, how He's wired them. And these kinds of strengths, there will also be weaknesses, but these kinds of strengths should be an asset to the rest of the church, either locally or around the world. They shouldn't be seen as things that set us apart from others any more than my spiritual gifts should be seen as something that sets me apart from others. I assume that all these things are meant to work together so that One local church is a blessing to others, just as one Christian and their spiritual gifts should be meant to be a blessing to others as well. So on the big scale, we've got the universal church. Every person who's trusted Christ, been given the Holy Spirit since Pentecost as part of that universal church. And that universal church is by necessity at least is expressed in local gatherings just like ours. Now, changing lenses entirely and looking at our local expression of this universal church to get a little bit more specific. We'll end up on the mission statement, but before we get there, uh, our name, uh, Lion and Lamb, it's unique. You, You probably know this already. I've not met anybody else from a church named Lion and Lamb. And I've talked to people if I'm at conferences or, and they say, where are you from, Lion and Lamb? You know, I'm thinking they're thinking of images of little stuffed animals. And it took a while for lion and lamb to grow on me, quite honestly. But the truth is, uh, past my initial reticence, uh, I've loved the name because of the imagery it brings up. And let me just tell you why. The lion and the lamb are, of course, the two animals that are used to depict Jesus Christ in his two phases of work, if you will. And out of John 1, 29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming up, Walking by he and his disciples, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So as a lamb, Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago in his mission to save people like you and I. He came as the sin bearer. And so just like those lambs that were offered in the Jewish temple, you know, he was the one who didn't didn't holler out, he didn't complain when when he was led to the cross. He suffered a substitutionary death for you and I. He was the Lamb of God who came to the earth to take away the sins of the world. So Jesus is the Lamb. He's also, though, 
you know the end of the story, Jesus is also a lion. And in Revelation 5, 5, when John is taken up to heaven and he's shown a scroll and it says no one's worthy to open it. And he weeps because he understands something of value is in that scroll. He wants to know what it says. And then they say, oh, by the way, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome to open the scroll. So Jesus isn't just the Lamb of God who came to the earth to die for our sins, but He's also the lion from the tribe of Judah who rose from the dead, who sits at God's hand in heaven now until He comes back to rule, Revelation 19 says, as King of kings and Lord of lords. So the name, the church name Lion and Lamb is supposed to elicit the thought of Jesus both in his what's called his role of humiliation as sin bearer, but also in his glorious future. So anything else apart, as a church, our name for our sake and for others is supposed to mean that we focus on nothing less and no one less than Christ. If you and I are are gathering to someone less than Christ, we're missing the mark. Or if our expression as individuals or as a church to someone else is less than Christ, either related to salvation or to His future reign and glory, we're missing the mark. Lion and Lamb, it's a solid name. It's, it's great imagery and it reminds us that Christ is what we're all about. The reason you've got the brochure is the mission statement on the front. This is our mission statement. We used to uh, publish this and leave it on the hall table. It didn't get uh, read often, so we quit that. But here it is again for you today. We're going to read through the mission statement, and in five different uh, phrases we'll look at what this says. By the way, uh, I hope one of the things you do as an individual or as a family is from time to time assess uh, where you're at, where your life is at, and where you think it's supposed to be and where you think God wants it to be in the future. A lot of us do this at the end of the year or the beginning of the year. Uh, if you haven't, uh, do it today or do it this weekend following this. This is kind of an assessment. This both informs us what we're doing as a church, what our identity is, but it also reminds us of where we're going. We can ask ourselves the question, are we missing the mark or are we following through on what we said is important to us? And as, an invi- as individuals, it's important to do that as well. Is my life where God wants it to be? What's God called me to do? Am I doing it? And and am I making preparation now to get where I think God wants me in the future? As much as I know, am I doing that? A mission statement helps us as a church to do that same thing. A mission statement says, within the large parameters of being the church, we understand this is our mission. As this local expression of the body of Christ, this is our mission. And on the front of your brochure there, your handout, The mission statement reads, Lion and Lamb is a fellowship of worshiping believers committed to authentically pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and obeying all His commands. Let me read that once more. Lion and Lamb, this church, is a fellowship of worshiping believers committed to authentically pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and obeying all His commands. In order, we are a fellowship. Fellowship means that we're personal. It means that the thought is when you come and are a part of this church, we want to be intentionally personal. We, we don't want to be impersonal. Uh, if you've traveled or visited churches, if you've needed to do that in the past, you know that oftentimes what people want to do is to come and sit in the back of the church impersonally 
so that they kind of check things out and see if it's a safe venue for them to think about joining. And that's fine. Uh, we had a friend in the church years ago who always wanted to introduce visitors. I'd say, please don't do that. Because when those visitors come and they sit in the back, they're there for a reason. It's not safe yet. They're checking you out. That's fine. But the truth is, in the end, you can't live like that. You can observe from the border for a while, but you have to find a place to knit in, to plug in. And at that point, we want to be intentionally personal. We want the church to function like an extended family. So, you know, we have potlucks once a month, not because the food is great, though most of the time it is. You know, sometimes the pizza's late, but we, we do potlucks because it gives us a family setting to sit down intentionally with each other and spend time together. We have home groups, which we'll be mentioning in some coming weeks, just to uh, reminders for what's coming up this fall, because we want to be intentional about being invested in each other's lives. If you are not in a local church, if you're not plugged in with others, I can tell you you're missing God's will for your life. can happen otherwise. If you're not plugged in relationally with other Christians, you're missing God's will for your life. So on the front end, we want to be a church that is intentionally personal, fellowship. I can tell you, and you know if you've done much reading at all, the church in the West in the last uh, 30 to 40 years has intentionally taken on a business model. And I don't want to be too critical about this, um, uh, but uh, what, it goes something like this. <laughs> yeah, it goes something like this. We have a CEO, that's the pastor. We have a board of directors, that's whatever the leadership team is called. And we have a product. We have goods and services that we produce and manufacture at this level of marketable excellence. And we have our clients. And we hope that through the excellence of our products, our goods and our services, we're going to be able to attract a minimum market, sell them our goods and services, and they're going to be with us a certain amount of time. And, and I'm prejudiced, and I know I'm presenting this in a prejudiced way, but I'm telling you, there, this, this is true, truly, at, at a re- reality level. This is, the mar- this is the model of many churches in the West today. And it's a capitulation of the culture that we live in, and the thinking goes like this. We're in a market-driven culture, and so we become a market-driven church. Um, the problem I have with it is this. It gives away the farm at the start. You just assume that the the personal isn't part of the equation. Now, the truth is, these churches try and get people in connected personally. And I I don't mean to say they don't. But you kind of give away the farm from from the inception because your model is a market consumer model. That's not our model. We intentionally as a church want to be personal. And so if someone comes in, we want to invite them to become part of a personal, extended family kind of venue, not a consumer venue. Typically, uh, Kathy and I got married uh, almost three decades ago. And when I moved, we both moved back to Topeka to get married. And I had no intention of living in Topeka again. I grew up here. No intention of staying here. We were going to move back to either the Rocky Mountains or the West Coast where I'd just come from. What happened? Well, we got married and and we got pregnant, there she is, and, and that, that threw a financial wrench into the thing. But the other thing that happened was this. 
uh, we got knit into a local church. See, then I couldn't say my desire, I want to go live in the mountains. Still do. Uh, The problem with that is I don't feel free to. Because I felt at this church 25 years ago, I felt like God had plugged me in and that I had responsibilities to those other people I was meeting with. I wasn't free to get up and leave because I was committed to the people I was meeting with in that church. And I've looked, frankly, I've studied long and hard in times in between then and now at moving back to the area I thought I would rather call home. And you know, if I did, I'd probably find a place to plug into and other Christians to plug in with. The problem always comes down to I don't feel at liberty to because I feel God wants me committed to the people I'm with. So we intend from the front end of the church to be personal. That's why we say it's a fellowship. It's not a business model. It's not a conglomeration of other whatever adjectives you want. It's fellowship. It's personal. It's a fellowship of worshiping believers. If you visit our website, you'll see Eric's put up there part of John 4, 23 and 24. If you remember this uh, dialogue Jesus is having in John 4, it's with a woman at a well, and she's talking with Jesus. Jesus is responding, and he says, An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Our goal as a church is to be those kinds of people Jesus said His Father was looking for, those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. We want to be intentional about worship. Worshipers are those people who have found something or someone of such excellent worth that they fit the rest of their life around them, around that object or that person. Christians are called to be worshipers who have believed in Jesus Christ, believed His claims, and find in Him a person of such surpassing excellence that their response to knowing Him is to bow down their lives to Him, worship Him, and declare His excellencies. When you and I think of worship, I think typically we're thinking of praise songs in a service on Sunday morning. That's fine. It's a very limited view of worship, though. You know, biblically, the view of worship is to bow down before your superior. And bowing down means you are subjecting yourself to them. That's worship. That's the bottom line of worship. Declaring Christ's praises is also part of that. But it's because we are already bowed down and submitted to who He is. We recognize His claims and we submit ourselves to Him. And then we declare His praises. But we are meaning to be intentional about being worshipers of Jesus Christ because we've believed in Him. We believe His claims. We've recognized in Him His surpassing excellence. And therefore, we fit the rest of our lives around Christ. We bow ourselves down to Him. We declare His praises. It's easy to sing songs. Singing songs is not worship. Not in, is not necessarily worship. Worship is your recognition of Christ's value, your personal prostrating yourself, if you will, before Him, spiritually if not physically, and declaring His praises. We could sing songs and it wouldn't be worship. Jesus says, in spirit and in truth. And in part that means 
worship by those who have Christ's spirit. And in truth, it means truth both on our end, acknowledging Jesus and who he is, and also truth. Uh, we talked about repentance and confession of sin at the beginning. Also, worship has to do sometimes with just saying, Lord, I, by the way, I blew it again this week. As I come before you, I'm not what you called me to be. Didn't do the things you called me to do, etc." But worship is recognizing in Christ his excellence and then bowing down before him and then declaring his praise. In Revelation, uh, Bob's lesson a week ago, I think it was, in Revelation 1, when John the, Bapt- or John the Apostle was bosom buddies with Jesus on earth, when he goes to heaven and sees him, he's not sure who it is because of Christ's glory in heaven. doesn't look the way he did on earth. And you remember what John's response is? It's to fall down. It's to fall down. And then later in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, you see Christ standing in the midst. And what does the host of heaven do? When they see Christ in the midst, it says they throw their crowns, their glory, the glory God's given them, they throw their crowns at His feet and they declare His praise. They say, holy, holy, holy. That's what you and I will be doing in heaven. And if this sounds boring, you know, as a kid, I thought, man, this sounds boring, you know. But the, the truth is, uh, you know, someone's overwhelmed when they, maybe physically, they're in a place, uh, you know, if you're, there are rides at, in Kansas City that I would have no business on, and, and I'm a, I've been a roofer, I've, been on, I've worked heights, etc. I have no appeal jumping from a platform, you know, on a cable. It, it, why? And, but if I did that, I'd be momentarily overwhelmed, wouldn't I? I'd be overwhelmed by the shock of my body free-falling through space. I'd be overwhelmed. I'd be in awe of, this, of what was happening to me. Well, seeing Christ in heaven, it's like being on one of those rides. It's not boring. You're going to be overwhelmed. It's so overwhelming. If God didn't fit you for it, you couldn't stand up. You couldn't stand it. So being in heaven and seeing Christ, it's not cherubs on clouds with harps. It's not boring. It's not organ music. It's not whatever you think of heaven as boring. It's going to be so awesomely overwhelming, you're not going to be able to stand up. You won't be able to breathe. It'll be like me jumping off that tower, you know. It's going to be overwhelming, anything but boring. We want to be intentional about worshiping somebody who's worth our worship. The third thing is authentically pursuing, authentically pursuing. Authentic is a key word here. Um, if someone came to our church and they walked away and they could say one word that I would think, yes, they got what we're about, it would be this one word, authentic. If they, if they just said, they're not much, but they are what they claim to be, I'd be happy. They are what they say they are. They have integrity in that sense. They don't say one thing and do another. They don't make these high lofty claims and then live down here. They are what they say they are. This is a good thing. You guys know in the, in the culture that we live in, Christians in the church are lampooned regularly for hypocrisy. Saying one thing, being another. And you know what the problem is? There's lots of room for the charge. One claim, different life. Is there a problem here? Yes, there is. It's not genuine. It's not authentic. And no wonder that so many people in the West don't take the church seriously because the church oftentimes, most often perhaps, shouldn't be taken seriously because we say one thing 
and we do another. We're not authentic. If there's one thing I hope we are always, it's this. We are what we say we are. We might not be more, and sometimes certainly we're less, but we're, that's what we're aiming for. We want to be genuine with whatever we are. We don't want to be pretentious. We want to be what we say we are, and we want to be fully what we say we are. I have a relative who's a contractor in a large city. He does nothing but high-end specialty work, and he's never at a lack for clients. And I was talking to him about it, and he's a sharp guy. He's a good guy anyway, but he was telling me why he thought he had been so successful, and all he said was this. He said, Mike, it's simple. I just do what I say. I just do what I say. And the thing was this, uh, Bill, the thing was this. You guys know if you, maybe if you need work done, you call 10 contractors. Uh, some might not return your call. Some may tell you they'll show up at a certain time and they don't. Well, this is true across the board. So my relative said, you know, when you do what you say you will, it's amazing, but it's valuable to people. You do what you say you'll do. Well, see, as a church, that's what we want. We want to do what we say we'll do. We want to be what we say we are. That's genuine. And when someone sees that, that gives them confidence. We want to be authentic enough that if someone looks in, they'd say, well, what I see is real so far. I'm willing to take a further look or a second look. We want to be authentic. We want to be who and what we say we are. The second part of that, authentically pursuing uh, this is, uh, for me, this is liberating. Pursuing, that means we're not there. Pursuing means we're not there. Um, you guys know Johnny Cash was one of the most beloved musicians we've had in this country, and he was for decades. And you know one of the reasons why? Because he was not pretentious. You know, he was, uh, Johnny Cash said he was a Christian, and I don't, I don't doubt him. But you also know, if, if you know anything about his life, it was a train wreck. Drugs and alcohol, jail, women, I mean, you name it. He did it. The reason, though, why his life remained appealing was because he didn't pretend to be what he wasn't. On one hand, he would publicly say with no apology. I remember as a kid seeing him in a, I think it was a Billy Graham crusade, Johnny Cash, at some big crusade, says, I want to say unapologetically, I'm a Christian. No bones about it. On the flip side, I mean, the guy's life was a wreck. The, the consistent thing was he didn't claim to be what he wasn't. The liberating thing about this for me, and I think it should be for you as well, is this. I can tell somebody who Christ is. I can tell them the kind of lifestyle God calls me to live. And then I can say, and by the way, I don't measure up. See, you can be absolutely authentic. You can present Christ to others. You can say there's a high call for Christians to live to, and I don't make the grade routinely. And you know what that means? Other people just know that you're honest. So you remove the pretense, and you remove the hypocrisy, and people are free to talk to you because you're honest. This is liberating. It's not only liberating for you to say, I'm not what I should be. I understand that, and I fail in ABC kinds of ways. But the beauty of that is when you communicate that to others, they understand you're like them. You're honest, you're genuine, you are authentic. So we want to be authentic, but we realize that authentic is a pursuit. That we, we still say this is the standard, this is still what we're aiming at, 
And the truth is we don't meet it, but that's, that's the direction we're going. We want to be honest about that. We're pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, vital comes from Latin vitae, life. Vitae, it's life. I'm convinced that most Christians are willing to live on scraps. I think most Christians, most of us, we're, live, we're willing to live a spiritually mundane, boring life. And the world looks at that and they're not interested. And you know what? I don't blame them. We want to pursue a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is the thing. Jesus Christ is the source of anything that can qualitatively be called vitae, life. Remember John 10.10, Jesus says, The reason I came to this world is so that you could have life and have it abundantly, not a little bit, but a lot. Or John 17.3, This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Life is to be found in Christ and in God. And I think most of us are willing to settle for scraps when Christ is presented a banquet and we say, thanks, but we're not interested. We should be pursuing life. We should be radical about pursuing life and that life is to be found in Christ. Jesus said in John 7 that those who believed in Him, who would get the Spirit after His resurrection, that the Holy Spirit in them would be like this overflowing, gushing fountain of life. And most of my Christian life, I was talking to some young man about this yesterday, I've been like the little old lady in the old hamburger commercial who goes to the window and opens it up and there's her burger and the little piece of meat in the middle and she says, where's the beef? I've been going to God for almost, well, 30 years and I've been saying, where's the beef? I see the promises and I want more of what you said is available, more life. And I think as individuals, as a church, we need to get off our duffs and say, Lord, we want more of what you came to give us. We want more of the abundant life you said is available in you. We want to experience more of that overflowing water you said we'd have through the Holy Spirit. C.S. Lewis said in one of his books that the problem with most Christians wasn't that we were too passionate, it's that we weren't passionate enough about the right things. So that when you and I fall into the traps, the snares of lust and sex and alcohol, you know, uh, in all the deficient mean ways I'm saying here, we're, we're settling for something less than God means us to have. We're not getting more. We're getting less. And Christians should live lives that are so compelling because they're so vital, they're so life-filled, that the world says that they want that kind of life, that they're missing out. The trouble is, for most of us, we look at the world and feel like we're missing out. It's supposed to be the other way around. Our lives should be overflowing with vitality, with life, because we're connected to the source of all life, Jesus Christ. So we're pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not settling for table scraps when the banquet is set before us. Don't uh, my, don't be religious. We want to be alive and we don't want to be churchy. We want to be Christ-like. Don't settle for seconds because there's a banquet set. The last thing is this. Obeying all His commands. Obedience. Ugh, the hard word. 
you know what, everything is talk until you get to this word. Everything is talk and maybe nothing more than that until you get to this word. Obedience. Let me just lay a little something on you here. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. If anyone loves me, he'll obey my teaching. He who does not love me doesn't obey me. If you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love. This is love for God to obey His commands. Gosh, how convicting. Jesus says, if I love Him, I obey Him. What does that mean when I'm disobeying Him? (laughs) That's right. I don't love Him. I might say I do, but I don't, do I? Because I'm not obeying. Our disobedience makes our claims to faithfulness or love for Christ sham. Obedience is what counts. Now guys, I'm I'm here to tell you, obeying doesn't get you to heaven. Faith in Christ gets you to heaven, gets you all the way home. Your obedience doesn't add one thing to your salvation. Not a thing. Did I say? Not a thing. Obedience is about your giving glory to Christ. It's also about His ability to reward you in eternity for your faithfulness here. And it's the only thing that makes sense. You know that if you disobey Christ, you get death. Do you know that all God's will for you and for me, all His will for you and me in this life and eternity, it's life and it's goodness. So that when we disobey, we don't get something good. We're missing out on something He meant for us. Obedience liberates us from something less. And it frees God to bless us. And if you're a parent, you know when your children are in rebellion against you, you're not free to have what we used to call with our girls, happy fellowship. We have frowns instead of smiles. We have discipline instead of happy times together. Well, obedience has that same impact between us and God. Disobedience separates us from God. doesn't mean we lose our salvation. It means we're not free to enjoy the relationship we should be free to enjoy with Christ and with our Father. Obedience is where the rubber meets the road. And it, you know, if we're going to fall down any place, it's going to be right there. Jesus says if we love Him, we'll obey Him. We want to be intentional about saying we're going to do what God calls us to do. We've already said we're not going to do it perfectly. I mean, period. And everything's a bit of a struggle and a crawl. But we're committed to obedience. We're committed to obedience. We are part, and maybe in in some... We're kind of an insignificant part of the universal church of Jesus Christ. And maybe on the large scale, maybe... Not that significant, but you know what? In our corner of the world, we are significant. We are a local expression of the universal body of Christ. And what we do, what you and I do, individually and corporately, it matters. It matters in time and it matters in eternity. And we are called on to live out and to express where we're at in the time we occupy to ourselves and others those things the church is called on to do. And by the way, before I forget... Just ask yourself, is there any hole in your life where you say, I know God wants me to do this, and I'm not doing it? And let me just remind you, I've got a a half a dozen things here. You and I as Christians and as the church are called to share the gospel. We're called to make disciples. We're called to baptize believers. We're called on to devote ourselves to each other, to care for each other, 
to train our children to honor Christ, to love our spouses, to care for the fatherless and the widows, to speak the truth in love, and the list goes on and on and on. And this isn't a saddle weight of law on top of our back. These are simply the things as God's children, as we grow up, we realize these are the things that we do in our father's household. This is what Christians do. You know, if you go through your own list, do you say, man, Lord, I'm not doing that, and Lord, I don't want to do that, or whatever. But obedience is that bottom line that makes, in a sense, makes us Christians. It gives expression to our Christianity. It gives expression to the claim to be a local church for Christ as well. That obedience walked out. God help us, in the end, to be a fellowship of worshiping believers committed to authentically pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and obeying all His commands. Lord, You are the bottom line. You spoke the universe into existence. You hold all things together by Your power. And Lord, one day each one of us will face You eye to eye. And the truth of who we were and what we did, of what we claimed and how we acted, Lord, will be measured absolutely. Father, I pray that you help us to live lives in such a way that we'll have no regrets when we see you, but that we will be able to present to you lives lived to your honor, lives lived intentionally in worshiping you, in proclaiming your excellencies, Lord, and then in displaying your life both for ourselves and for the church and for the larger world around us, Lord. Make us individually and collectively who and what you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.